Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking cancer and nutrition with Dr. Joe Zundel. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 128 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we're joined with Dr. Joe Zundel, who has a PhD in cancer biology. He is a cancer researcher and is well-versed on this topic. With over 10 years of cancer research experience, Joe is here to talk to us all about nutrition and cancer, and we've got some important questions to ask him. Feel free to check out his Instagram, where he aims to educate people around this topic, his Social media is phenomenal. I love his page. I love what he brings to the platform. You can find him at Zundel on Instagram. And ladies and gentlemen, Joe Zundel, how are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. And I got, I guess I found you through Joey Munoz. How do you guys know each other? Yeah, so I um I discovered Joey a while ago, um, just as he was starting for Team BioLane, just when he had met Lane. Um, and we've just, you know, we've kept in contact. Um actually I went to school in the the Florida area for a while, so I'm very familiar with where he currently lives. Um and so, you know, I, I go down there frequently to visit family and friends. And um, you know, as I've been down there, I've ventured out to visit Joey and we've hung out and he's, he's just a really good dude. And we've, we've consistently been friends, uh, ever since, uh, ever since I met him on Instagram. So that sounds like, uh, my relationship with him too, but I haven't gone out there yet. And he keeps telling me, he's like, come out to Tampa, man, we'll get a workout in, hmm. you know, he's a really, really great guy, really genuine guy. He's a, a, a frequent visitor on this podcast. So yeah, I saw that he's been on your podcast before you guys had a really good episode, uh, together. So Appreciate that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your background and what it is that you do and how you got to doing what you do. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So my path is kind of unconventional. I initially, you know, throughout high school, I was, I almost joined the military at some point I was doing ROTC and I got full scholarship to go to school, go figure things didn't really work out. And when I went to school, I initially went for uh, marine biology (laughs) And, um, you know, things didn't work out with that. Um, but initially my, uh, my mom got sick with cancer, uh, towards the tail end of high school. Um, and she fought for about two years, um, and eventually succumbed to esophageal cancer. And so going through that time, it was, it was really challenging for me to, you know, um, figure out exactly what I was interested in and what I wanted to do as I progressed into undergraduate, uh, research. Um, Because after she died, you know, I was still on that marine biology track. I went to school, you know, on my ROTC scholarship that I had. They essentially revoked it because they gave it to somebody else, even though I'd signed the paperwork for it. So then I couldn't afford that school. Um, And then I had to transfer to St. Leo University, which is just outside of Tampa, where my twin sister was at the time. And they didn't have a marine biology degree. So I took a biology degree there. And so I kind of shifted focus from doing marine biology to just um, standard foundational biology. So I took all my chemistry and stuff like that 
Um, but then I, I really became enthralled with this idea of trying to understand cancer biology, largely because, you know, of my own personal experiences with my mom. But it was it was motivation for me to, you know, really dig into my studies. And so I became kind of obsessed, um, somewhat unhealthily to uh, studying. And it, it was, it, you know, I, I just found everything that I was learning at the time to be quite beautiful. Um, and it helped me cope with uh, cope with the loss of my mom. And so I, I really embraced learning cancer biology, and I ended up eventually towards the end of my undergrad um, getting internships at the Moffitt Cancer Research Center, uh, wanted to do graduate school there, didn't get in, was eventually able to get a technician position with a newer um, lab leader at the Moffitt Cancer Research Center just in, you know, in Tampa. Um, and he eventually moved like right as I started to, he's like, hey, I don't like Moffitt, even though he had just started. And um, was like, you know, let's move to the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia. So I moved to the lab with him to Philadelphia, where I currently am. And then, you know, eventually enrolled into a cancer biology program that was in partnership with the University of the Sciences and the Wistar Institute, where I was a technician. And I did my thesis work at the Wistar Institute with a different PI, essentially in studying um, ovarian cancer, a specific type of ovarian cancer. And I've published a, a quite a diverse array of, of articles in, in a few different types of cancers, um, leukemia being one of them. And of course, my thesis work, a lot of ovarian cancer related work. So you basically kind of got your foot in the door by being a technician and then found the path forward, right? You still wanted to take that path, which obviously shows some a uh, great deal of determination, right? You still wanted to do it, even though you got rejected. And then, you know, you went for it. Yeah. So funny enough, the, uh, the way I actually got into Moffitt when I first started out was kind of like the I had this Goodwill Hunting. Have you guys seen Goodwill Hunting? Of course, I'm from Boston. You're preaching to the choir. That's my favorite movie of all time. So I'm from Western Massachusetts too. So like, um, you know, there's that that scene in Goodwill Hunting where he's, you know, he's he's a janitor for I think Harvard, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he's he's solving the problems on the board. So I had this idea. I was like, well, you know, I went to this school. Uh, in the middle of nowhere, you know, just outside of Tampa that nobody knows about. The town is named after the school, St. Leo University. And it's a really small private school, beautiful school, but nobody knew who the hell I was. And so despite my experiences, um, even getting an internship at Moffitt, it was really hard for me to place there. So what I eventually did was I was like, okay, I'm going to do like what Goodwill Hunting did. I'm going to apply for literally every position on the board, including janitorial positions. And so I applied to all of those jobs and HR called me one day. They're like, what are you doing? They're like, you know, you're, <laughs> you have a bachelor's in science. Why are you applying for janitorial work? And I told them what my intent was. I said, I, I've been having trouble getting in um, as a scientist to, to prove my worth. And my idea was I'll sweep the floors and talk to scientists while I do that. And she's like, we've got this new PI starting this new lab leader starting and Eventually, I ended up getting that job, um, which was probably the hardest job I've ever had. That man was a tyrant. But uh, yeah, that's a different story. Yeah, those tough jobs build character, huh? Oh, man. Um, it was horrible. Uh, it was a horrible. <laughs> um, my minimum work day was a 12 hour work day there. I worked seven days a week for two years and three months. But as a part of that sacrifice, I learned more than I did through grad school and undergrad in that two years and three months. Um, but it was hell. Yeah. All right. Well, it brought you to where you are now. It brought me to where I am now. And now I, um, you know, I've gained a lot of empathy for, for people. Um, so I'm, I'm able to not 
act like that and and try and guide people in the way that I see is is appropriate in terms of teaching them science. So I, I hope to be a good mentor to a lot of people, as many people as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. How'd you get how'd you get into the social media, the posting about cancer, different uh, I guess things that I don't want to say controversial <laughs> topics. I just I don't feel like they're controversial, but I feel like people misrepresent it and you do a great deal of calling people out on that. Yeah, I've actually uh, done a lot less of that nowadays because I'm trying to be more educational um, and more productive with my um, with my audience. But um, I initially got started. Um, my page before it was a cancer research page was a fitness page, um, just kind of like Joey's. And so before Dr. Joe Zundel, before I even uh, you know acquired my my graduate degree, I was Fit Joe Z. Uh, <laughs> And so I, you know, posted my workout videos. I spoke about supplement usage and, um, you know, the available evidence um, for particular supplements. And and ultimately, it's it's very minimal for a lot of supplements. So I was in ambassadorships um, for some companies, got kicked out of them because they don't like people talking about evidence related to their their supplements because there really aren't any. I got a cease and desist from a few um, supplement companies because they really didn't want me talking about it. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. Wow. Most, <laughs> uh, so that was fun. So I was like, maybe I need to pivot a little bit and talk about like actual critical thinking. So I was like, I know how to do cancer biology. I'm going to use cancer biology as a template to teach people foundational concepts of biology. So I use cancer as essentially as a, as a template to, um, you know, teach people things like you know, what exactly is the immune system? What's, what is autophagy? What are all these things that you, you frequently see people misinterpret online um, and break them down as simply as I can, hoping that people will kind of, you know, listen and, and come up to my level to be able to have productive and truly meaningful discussions. So I've, I've called out people like Paul Saladino, you know, Mark Hyman. Um, ultimately though, a lot of these call out videos, um, they're, they're good for clicks and I do them occasionally because they are good for clicks and you kind of have to do them. Um, but they aren't super productive because you essentially kind of create echo chambers of people that just agree with you. So yes. I've been doing those, um, modestly over, over time, but there are some pages that I, you know, they're called science communicators, but they dedicate the entirety of their being to calling people out. And I don't think that's necessarily effective scientific communication. So I'm trying not to be like that and actually teach people. So has it affected my growth on social media negatively? Absolutely. But I'd rather grow slowly and teach people than grow too quickly and just create an echo chamber of people that just want to shit on Paul Saladino and Mark Hyman and, and all these other charlatans on social media. So how I solve the problem, or at least how I choose to solve the problem is by approaching the root cause of, uh, of people's logical fallacies by, you know, teaching them basic critical thinking skills. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, I really want you to educate us today and our audience. Yes. So I want to get into some of the topics that I want to talk about today. And I think the first place that I'll start with you is talk to us about cancer and exactly pretty much what happens when somebody develops certain types of cancer. And is there a genetic role, environmental role, and what plays into basically the whole concept of cancer? Yeah. So I think to start this conversation, we need to, you know, kind of address what exactly is cancer. And so from a simplistic mechanistic standpoint, um, cancers can arise when they lose the ability to regulate 
certain components of cell division um, to where they they continue to, to divide despite um, I guess the stop signs that that come within cell division because as cells divide, you know, as they go through mitosis, if you've taken basic cellular biology, as they go through mitosis, um, that cell cycle checkpoint, um, at each cell cycle, there are checkpoints to kind of determine if the cell is healthy enough to keep going through those checkpoints. And if they pass the, the, the healthy threshold, they continue past those checkpoints, but cancer cells, um, I found a way to, to bypass those checkpoints just to continue growing despite having um, inborn errors, whether it's genetic mutations or um, epigenetic, largely environmental alterations with which affect um, genetic expression, which can essentially sustain growth despite those stop signals, basically. So in cancer, as, as cancer cells develop, um, depending on where it is in the body, these growth mechanisms vary because as you point out, there's, there's genetic and environmental contributions to cancer, depending on where cancer develops or originates. Um, those environmental cues are going to be varied. So you're going to have different signals in the pancreas, uh, than you are in the liver or the kidneys or the lungs or the breast or, you know, sex specific cancers or, you know, like, uh, testes or, or, or ovaries as an example. So these micro environments can, dictate, you know, how the cancers develop over time. And so that's actually one thing that makes it very challenging to treat cancers because despite even genetic similarities um, regarding mutations, um, so like an, uh, an example of that would be a common mutation would be something like P53 or um, CMYK, these, these common tumor suppressors, P53, and oncogenes like CMYK. Um, they share similarities amongst a variety of different cancers, but that environmental difference between, you know, those, those tumors in two seemingly different areas, despite the mutation similarities can have very different outcomes. So we need to treat them different, uh, with, you know, regarding therapies. Let me ask you a question. So you, I just want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned that, uh, cancers can come from either mutated cells or epigenetic. Like, how does that work? I aren't, are all cancers mutated cells? Like, how does that work? Um, so it's, it's, you know, as, as I'm going to say, probably often it's, it's contextual and it's complicated. Um, I did this recent post about the two hit hypothesis. Um, and it's something that we, we study, you know, when we, when we first get into cancer biology research, the two hit hypothesis can be when you have chromosomal abnormalities. So it can be like, you know, a genetic mutation or an error um, in mitosis that can lead to um, improper chromosome formation. Uh, I can talk about a specific example of that, but that's at a later stage. Um, but it can also, it's it's not just one thing. So you need more than one event to initiate tumor cell formation. So you can have a mutation, but there are inborn mechanisms within us to correct um, any, any mutational issues because we have, you know, we have two chromosomal copies. We have one from our parent, uh, one from, you know, one from our dad, one from our mom. Um, and so if there's an issue in one gene on one chromosome, we have mechanisms in place, um, through this process called homologous recombination, where you can fix that gene using the normal copy of the other chromosome essentially as a, as a template to fix it. But as I said, there, 
you need a combination of of epigenetic components. So epigenetics is, is a little bit difficult to describe because there are a variety of situations which dictate how a gene is being read. Um, and this is where I, where I talk about how the environment um, between organ systems can can change how certain genes are expressed. So it's essentially it needs a combination of those environmental factors and mutational factors to be able to induce tumor formation in such a way where it's it's so damaged that it can't be fixed. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, and a good example of that would be like, um, I think it's acute myelogenous leukemia. A good example of that would be the formation of, um, or maybe it's CML. I always get these confused. Uh, the formation of uh, the Philadelphia chromosome. Coincidentally, I'm in Philadelphia, so it's applicable. Um, so the Philadelphia chromosome occurs when you have this fusion event between two chromosomes as, you know, as cells are dividing the chromosomes align um, at a specific plate in the cell. And there's this fusion event that occurs that shouldn't. Um, and it, and it makes essentially um, a synthetic gene um, that's, that's only available in cancer cells and not normal cells because it's, it doesn't happen normally. And so a result of that gene product, um, when that gene is read and translated into a protein, so DNA is transcribed um, into mRNA. mRNA is then read by ribosomes and translated into this sequence of amino acids called a protein. And so it essentially makes a new protein called um, BCR um, ABLE. And BCR is one protein, ABLE is another, but it's a fusion protein. Now it has, it makes a protein that has essentially two functions that weren't there before. And so making this fusion protein due to that chromosomal issue is a, um, it causes a lot of metabolic problems in that cancer. But because of that fusion protein, we can um, make molecules to target uh, that, that fusion protein. Cause again, they don't exist in normal cells. So that's, that's a, a good example of a chromosomal issue that can occur, um, as a result of not being able to fix a, a DNA repair mechanism. Very yeah. in depth, very detailed. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard. There's uh so the drug that I, I didn't mention that it was actually FDA approved a long time ago. It was one of the, um, kind of like groundbreaking drugs that was produced because you know it's it's able to target just cancer cells because that protein is not made in in normal healthy cells it's uh the drug is called glevec so it's yeah that was you know and cancer cells sometimes make these weird proteins that uh we can we can target but it's not always the case sometimes it's metabolic components the um so without changing or mutating the protein itself the, they can often overexpress it so this is where the environment um can can dictate uh, the outcome of a disease. So instead of mutating a protein, they can make too much of the protein, um, in this case, like an enzyme. And that can increase the the metabolic rate associated with that enzyme. And we can inhibit that enzyme. Um, but a component of that is, you know, um, if it's, if it's overexpressed in that particular tissue and it's, it's not something that's different than normal cells, you're going to have some off-target effects, um, if you treat with that inhibitor against that protein, because it's going to affect normal cells as well. I want to talk a little bit about some uh, misconceptions floating around, and I know that you've posted a great deal about them. And I, you know, sent you a few that uh, really come to mind, and that I really think would be beneficial for our audience. I want to start with 
the first thing, what do you think are some of the most common myths regarding we'll go cancer and nutrition? Cause we have you on and we're eat right nutrition. So yep. just, uh, seems, seems like a fit. Yeah. So the, the most common myth that I see, and for some reason I can't seem to stop it, um, is, you know, that, that sugar causes cancer. And so stupidly, well, not stupidly, I guess it's understanding that the premise of that comes from misrepresentation of initially Otto Warburg's findings. Um, Otto Warburg was a, a very good scientist, a very good cancer biologist back, you know, in the, in the early 1900s and around the 1920s, he discovered that, um, cancer cells, they, they do this weird thing with sugar where they increase dramatically the uptake of sugar specifically glucose. And in doing so, they create this kind of weird, uh, this weird environment. So they take up too much glucose and it actually ends up producing excess amounts of lactic acid. Mm. And so from those findings, people like to assume that uh, sugar causes cancer because cancer cells have an increased rate of glucose uptake and it appears to promote their metabolic capabilities. Um, but from a, a very deep mechanistic understanding over the years, obviously that was back in the 1920s, we've we've discovered that, you know, it's reasonable to assume that sugar can can worsen cancer upon that progressive. And, and I think it's realistic to suggest that it can, but it's it's kind of like um it's a means to an end. So they take in more glucose to fuel other processes that they need to survive. Um, we can target those mechanisms with inhibitors, but they'll increase glucose as a means to an end. So it's not always the same um, mechanism that they'll lead to the increase of, of glucose absorption. So over the years, we've discovered a variety of different ways that lead to increased glucose absorption in cancer cells. You know, they can increase citric acid cycle uh, metabolite production. Um, so to accommodate that as a feedback mechanism, they'll, they'll upregulate um, glucose receptors depending on the tissue to increase that, that rate of absorption. But all in all, we've essentially found that sugar is not causative to cancer. It's just a, a feedback component to sustain the metabolism of cancer cells. And we see all these weird uh, characteristics like lactic acid uh, production, um, which of course stems out of this, you know, cancer being an out, uh, an acid environment. Um, well, let me, so you've, yeah, sure. Let me ask, let me ask you this. So what I, what, what I kind of gather is I don't know if it's necessarily whether or not sugar causes cancer, but I think more so, well, if I have cancer or had cancer at one point, because, you know, I, I hear the the statement uh, on a pretty regular basis that cancer feeds off of glucose. Therefore, mm -hmm. if I were to change my diet and not consume sugar or potentially maybe go on a ketogenic diet and not consume carbohydrates at all, that that may be beneficial towards basically starving a cancer cell. So we're like, where are we at in terms of that? Yeah. So I have to be um, very careful when I talk about this stuff, because I don't want to give people the wrong impression that starving cancer cells from sugar is going to be helpful by doing something like a ketogenic diet. Um, I will start off by talking about the data, right? So there are clinical trials. Um, there's actually one recently that looked at you know, trying to reduce the amount of uh, sugar in your diet, specifically glucose, um, in favor of a ketogenic diet and how that affects cancer 
um, outcomes, particularly in pancreatic cancers, the clinical trial I'm talking about. Um, and so what they're finding in these, in these studies and these clinical trials is that when you put somebody on a ketogenic diet, it shifts their metabolism of glucose. So their dependency on glucose to rely on other substrates to sustain their metabolism, whether it's um, fat, uh, specific types of fats, or specific types of amino acids from protein sources, it'll vary between cancers. But essentially what that does is by providing that environmental change or that stimulus, it changes the, the metabolism of those cells, the, the epigenome as well. And so genes that were on when sugar was available are now not as on, they're somewhat suppressed. They're still on, but they're not as on. Like it's in everything in biology isn't like an on and off switch, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll just, you know, keep it as an on and off switch, but there's always like a basal level amount of things going on. But those genes that were once, you know, hypothetically on are now off. That's for the sake of simplicity. And so this changes the landscape at which we can now, because the tumor cells have adapted to a ketogenic diet, the environment of a ketogenic diet, other genes turn on that were not there in the presence of glucose. And this has shown, at least in the data, that now we can use chemotherapeutics that didn't work because they were in the environment of glucose. Now there's new genes on that make them more sensitive to that chemotherapeutic. So they're also finding in these trials that if you put somebody on a ketogenic diet alone, it appears to be making things worse. So, you know, I, I hope that people are, are very careful when they consider this information. Um, hypothetically, you can change the metabolism of specific types of cancers, depending on where they are, not all cancers, um, with dietary strategies, but diet alone from our understanding as um, both mechanistic studies and um, from clinical trials, diet alone does not appear to, to, to have favorable outcomes from a cancer patient strategy. It is only useful in the combination of, of chemotherapeutic approaches, but we need to determine which chemotherapies or which drugs or which immunotherapies um, will be helpful when you produce an environment with a diet. But again, never good alone. So cancer cells are essentially flexible, just like pretty much any other cell in the body. So I think people have this misconception that cancer cells are somehow a different entity, like an alien. Yeah, but I agree with that. They're, they're your cell body. Yeah. Your body. They're adapting. They're just, they're just kind of fucked up a little. Yeah. You know, so they, well, no, they're usually fucked up kind of a lot, depending on the progress <laughs> of the disease. Excuse my language. <laughs> but they utilize a lot of the same mechanisms to survive. They're just um, exaggerated. And so this is, you know, is often a very difficult thing when we're treating these cancers because they're, you know, you're using the same mechanisms for survival that normal cells, healthy cells around them are also using. So it's not surprising in many cases that when we treat with a particular drug, literally any drug, we see issues in other cells in the body because those other cells in the body are also using those same mechanisms to promote their growth. And so we have to, you know, very carefully determine dosing, the kinetics of the drug to regulate those um, off-target interactions that we, we don't want. So yes, it's very, very dynamic. 
Now, a question for you. If someone had had cancer previously, mm-hmm. is there any benefit to them following a low sugar diet or a low carbohydrate diet? Or we don't really <clears throat> have data on that. Um, to my knowledge, I don't know if there's any benefit. Um, if after cancer, somebody should be on a, a low carb diet. But what I can say is, you know, if somebody is, is, you know, in remission, they don't have any apparent cancer formation or tumors. One thing that we know to be helpful is that, you know, after you go through specific uh, therapies, you, you should have relatively high protein diets. Most people, I think in general, don't consume enough protein. They should also be implementing some form of exercise. Um, and, and it doesn't need to be anything super crazy. It doesn't need to be like, you know, what Joey Munoz is doing on his page with his resistance training. And, and it doesn't even need to be what I do on, on my page it just needs to be some level of consistent daily movement, um, something that people enjoy that they can continue to do in a sustainable fashion. Um, you know, and a lot of people much more intelligent than me in the nutrition space, like Lane Norton, you know, obviously Joey have, have spoken about this, but in a disease state, especially after you're recovering for disease, that, that, exercise window is, is incredibly important and your diet should accommodate that. So depending on your level of movement, um, you know, you need carbs. So I think a lot of people don't realize just how important carbohydrates are for the body. Uh, one of the foundational lessons we learn in biology is, you know, the macromolecules of life that's, you know, nucleic acids, fats, proteins, and, and carbohydrates, and they all come in varying forms and varying sources. So you know, you need all of these macromolecules to survive to some extent in um, in varying uh, quantities. But depending on the the energy output and energy input, um, your diets will vary. And in general, you know, low carbohydrate diets, if you're exercising, don't appear to be quite favorable. Gotcha. From a calorie standpoint, is there a people who are eating in excess in surplus, right? Because you mentioned, you know, energy in, energy out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. People who are eating energy and surplus, do we find that they're more likely, I guess, people that overeat, they're more likely to develop cancers? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to post on this soon. I don't know if I want to make a reel on it or if like I want to make a carousel. <clears throat> I like my imagery, but carousel takes me a lot longer just because I, I, I'm i very like attention to detail. Reels are super easy because I can just sit in front of the camera and ramble. But yeah, so there's there's a very strong link between obesity and and cancer. Um, because as somebody becomes obese, again, they produce a varied environment in a variety of different organ systems um, that are in collaboration with each other, like the the liver, the kidneys, the pancreas. And, you know, their increased rate of fat deposition, particularly like in the liver, as an example, fatty liver. Fatty liver is is one of the the leading contributors towards things like liver cancer um, can, and it can eventually lead to, um, you know, liver scarring and things like that too. But, um, there are a lot of metabolic outcomes that come from being obese that not only increase your risks for cancer, but also increase your risks for heart disease, which, you know, arguably kills more people than, than cancer, um, at least now. So yeah, in general, people want to really be careful about the amount of calories they consume in relation to the amount of calories that they're expending due to physical activity uh, to help reduce the the onset of, I guess, all diseases. Now, of course, you know, there's going to be genetic contributions to um, various likelihoods of people to develop certain diseases. But um, again, in general, if people take into consideration their level of exercise relating to 
I guess their their lack of activity, um, you know, and they try and actually get in some consistent exercise, it's going to be uh, effective for them in the long run, despite any genetic uh, predispositions. Now, from an exercise standpoint, the, I mean, we we know about the concept the concept of hormesis, right? Like just a small stress inoculation, you know, over time that kind of builds up, strengthens your immune system. Obviously, I would guess that that would be helpful if your immune system is stronger over a longer period of time. The more you exercise, theoretically, the more the less likely you are to develop cancer. Um, so I actually in my thesis work I studied this. Um, even before my thesis work, I studied this thing called the ER stress response. So uh, hormesis kind of rings a bell for me a lot too. And I, I again, I want to be very careful because there are some people on social media um, who kind of misuse this word hormesis to suggest that um, consistent low levels of stress are helpful. But I don't want people getting the wrong ideas because that level um, of stress varies dramatically between people. So I can't sit here and say like, everybody should be doing this, what I perceive low level of stress activity is, because that might be depending on who you are, uh, where you're located in the in the world, what you eat, any genetic predispositions you might have, that might be actually a high level of stress. There are, again, there are innate things within our biology to deal with certain amounts of stresses on a regular basis, no matter what we do. Um, but independent of what we think of hormesis, um, physical activity is just, it's just a helpful thing to do for humans, um, without complicating it by things like hormesis. Just, I mean, you've got two legs. We've evolved not to use this stupid kind of like ancestral thing. You know, we've evolved as human beings to have two legs, um, that are mechanically developed to move sitting down, like even now, like as I, you know, I, I recently got a job in an in industry and now I'm actually sitting a lot more than I used to than when I was in academia, um, having to run around in lab a lot more and it's hurting my knees. Um, so like we're, we're built to move around. And I think that people need to understand that independent of any mechanistic studies that people want to say out there, we can apply fancy mechanisms to things, but at the end of the day, you just need to get up and move. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I would say there's definitely something to be said for how you feel when you move more versus when you move less, not even just from, you know, like you mentioned, Hey, my knees hurt because I sit more mine too. Yeah. And my back and everything else. And, you know, I, I oftentimes, I oftentimes find this with many people is oh, my back hurts. I can't work out. And I'm like, well, no, you should usually be doing the opposite because you need to strengthen certain muscles that are meant to work to keep things together. Well, I will say not to, to stop you, but um, I will say it depends on the type of pain. Obviously, that's a common sense thing to say. Um, if, you're, if you're injured, obviously, you don't want to go to the gym. You want to rest. So obviously, people need to know like when they should be resting. Like my wife, you know, she hurt her knee this week. It wasn't it wasn't injured to an extent like she actually damaged something, but she just she couldn't move it. It was it was really inflamed. And she's like, oh, I should go to the gym, and move around. I was like, no, you should actually lay down and rest and put some ice on it because it was too inflamed. I'm like, you risk, you know, going to the gym and making that worse. So I am also um, empathetic to people that, you know, when you first start exercising, it's, it's very challenging to get into the behavior of going to the gym. It's daunting, you know, uh, going to the gym, you see these, these people that are, you know, they're, they're more fit than you. And it's, um, it's challenging. It's emotionally taxing. And so to get yourself into the behavioral state where, 
exercise becomes a part of your life and you start to feel like you need to go to the gym, it's really hard to get there. So like even now when I woke up this morning, I didn't want to go to the gym, but there was like something in me telling me to to go and just do something. And I remember, you know, like 10 years ago, this is, you know, just to give you an idea of how long this behavior took to develop 10 years ago, I would have never thought that way. I would have just stayed home and rested. But realistically, I wasn't in any sort of pain. I was just maybe a little bit of tired, but I knew that as soon as I got to the gym, even though I didn't complete my workout today, I did I did one exercise out of the the four or five that I had to do, but I got there and I did what I could and I felt better afterwards. So sometimes it's just about, you know, adapting the behavior and just getting there too. And I, I think people need to understand that as well. Yeah. And a lot of times people go into the they go into it thinking, well, I can't do this big, full, grand workout, so I'm not going to do it at all. But something, in your case, like you just mentioned, something is most often going to be better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I found that, you know, that's helpful for me at least. But, you know, again, it, it varies between people. But I, I do want to give people this idea that it takes a very long time to adapt that behavior. Absolutely. So you mentioned we talked about sugar. And you also talked about lactic acid. Um, is that part of the whole acid base alkaline concept there? Yeah. So the thing with the alkaline diet is the thing that actually can make that healthy is that part of that, I don't think that people that push the alkaline diet realize, or maybe they do and they're just being malicious, is that they're telling people to consume more vegetables. Um, not only do people in general, not consume enough protein, but they also don't consume enough vegetables. So, um, you know, regarding specific dietary strategies like the carnivore diet, people are eating too much meat and not enough vegetables, but it's kind of the opposite with the alkaline diet. If, if um, you know, if I'm wrong about anything, you guys can correct me because, you know, my, my space, I do want to be very clear. My space is not nutrition. Um, I rely on people like Lane and yourselves and, and Joey to kind of keep me in track. So if I say anything that's that's out of line with with nutritional recommendations, just stop me. Yeah, yeah, you're good so far. Be good. Um, but anyways, regarding these these acid based or alkaline diets, um, the idea again there is off of misinterpretations of um, of Otto Warburg's observations. So again, they're taking these old early observations and they're applying the the same findings to things that have changed. And so oftentimes in cancer cells. Um, because they have increased metabolic rates, they can change the the pH of their environment. And now, again, in foundational biology, we learned that even subtle changes in pH regarding chemistry can be bad for health outcomes. So um, the physiological pH of blood is 7.4. If it were to go up or down by 0.2 to 0.3, 7.4 to 7.6, or you know, 7.4 to 7 or 6.9, you'd be in some serious trouble because that pH essentially affects the, the rate at which oxygen transfers from hemoglobin into your tissues. So that's actually one of the first things we learn when we take biochemistry, um, at least that I learned in, in undergrad was you know the mechanism of how hemoglobin works. So a lot of the premise behind you know the alkaline diet is because cancer cells metabolism they, they change the pH of their environment usually to something lower than 7.4 physiological pH to about 6.9 that it's an acid-based disease and you can change the the environment of um, or the pH of that environment to reverse 
specific characteristics of cancer, but that's not easy. And it, and it can't realistically be obtained by dietary uh, changes. So oftentimes these alkaline diet pushers talk about, you know, changing the pH of the body, but you can't realistically do that on a systemic level because as I pointed out, you'd have some serious issues if you could. Not only that, um, whenever you consume something, uh, the gastrointestinal lining, um, your esophagus into your stomach has adapted, you know, to deal with an incredibly low pH. So pH is on a scale from, you know, zero to 14. It's a logarithmic scale. That's why those tiny minute differences make a big difference in terms of pH. So the stomach pH of bile acid is two, and it's very tightly regulated by a strong acid. Now there's all sorts of um, acids and bases, strong acids, weak acids, strong bases, weak bases. The, the acid in your stomach is a very strong acid that's hydrochloric acid, and it has a very, very strong uh, ionization rate, the ability of the hydrogen ion to break away from the chlorine ion. It's very, very tightly um, interacting, especially in the stomach. And so the ability of a food to change the pH of our stomach is, is minimal at best because it's very tightly controlled by a strong um, buffer, acidic buffer, essentially this hydrochloric acid. Even then the rationale behind consuming those alkaline foods, like people love alkaline water, that is a pH of nine. The minute it hits the stomach, it's neutralized because it's a weak buffered water. Hydrochloric acid is one of the strongest acids. You throw uh, alkaline water in the stomach, the water's like, or your stomach's like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Literally, it's like, fuck you, yeah. you're back to pH of two, like immediately as it hits the stomach. So Alkaline diet's a load of garbage, except for the fact that it can work because people are consuming more vegetables in their diet. And then what are the effects of the vegetables of consuming more vegetables on cancer? I think we should probably talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, going back to the, um, the carnivore diet, one of the issues with the carnivore diet is, you know, high consumption of meats, saturated fats. And we're finding that people that consume large amounts of, of, you know, particularly red meats and saturated fats they have higher likelihoods for cancers. Now, when this is counteracted by the consumption of a nutrient-rich diet, as opposed to just like everyone can consume red meat, it's it's a perfectly reasonable thing to eat. But when that's the only thing that you're eating in relation to everything else, you're going to have some negative health outcomes. So when we counteract the um, consumption of red meat with vegetables, which contain a lot of other vitamins and minerals, um, particularly things like fiber as well, we can offset the effects that just, you know, come from consuming just or, or a diet high in, in meats like red meat. Of course, we should all try and consume diverse meat sources, not just, you know, steaks and, and red meat sources, but lean meat sources like, you know, ground turkey and chicken. So, um, or even like pork tenderloin, a, a lower fat, you know, form of pork, you know, and I try and integrate these into my own dietary approaches. And, and I've not always been good with vegetable consumption either, but the, I guess the more well-versed in, in the research that I've become, I guess, and I, I, I say this kind of warily, is that the more scared I've become, because now I understand more about the disease progression and what can happen if I don't consume a nutritionally uh, or, or nutrient rich and diverse type of diet. So now over the past, even a few years, like it's, you know, I've, I've tried to consume a lot more vegetables because, um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I, I, I love a good steak, you know, and I love a good cheeseburger. 
Um, you know, they're very palatable, but nobody's saying that you can't have a cheeseburger and you can't have a steak. You just got to add a serving of maybe some, you know, grilled spinach with some garlic and butter on it. Or, uh, you know, maybe instead of the French fries, get um, I'll never suggest broccoli to anyone. I can tell you that much. <laughs> but like some green beans, like I love green beans. So you got to find things that you enjoy, you know, eating. Fuck cauliflower, too. <laughs> But, uh, you know, oh, I love cauliflower. Good. Some good cauliflower stir fry rice. That's amazing. You do you, man. I mean, maybe in rice, it's a little bit better. It's tolerable, especially with some, you know, good, maybe Thai sesame soy sauce on it. But there you go. You got know, to You got to diversify your palate and make sure that, again, just like with exercise, you have to make sure it's sustainable, that you can actually do it while maintaining um, standards of health. I'll tell you what. I had a cauliflower pizza the other night. Amazing. I don't even know. Uh, and I'll tell I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. The reason why cauliflower pizzas are so amazing um, is because they're not really cauliflower pizza. It's ca- a little bit of cauliflower mixed with either rice flour or wheat flour, and it's just basically a pizza. Why not just eat the cauliflower? Pizza? Why 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 try and be healthy? Just eat a pizza. Yeah. Well, I actually accidentally bought the cauliflower one, so that's basically why. Otherwise, I would have bought the regular one. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, everything in moderation to some degree, right? Um, so let me yeah. ask you this. You you talked about the uh, meat, for example, red meat. And I know that there was a, a lot of, there's still a lot of headlines on this. World Health Organization released the study on different types of meat and the processed meats uh, seem to be the biggest culprits, right? Mm-hmm. They rated foods depend based on the likelihood of cancer. and pro- And the processed meats were the highest, I assume, because of sodium nitrate, sodium nitrite, things of that sort. And meat, red meat, you're saying, was also high, is also high on that list, right? Mm -hmm. My question for you is this. Well, I have a few questions. In that type of data, we're looking at more so epidemiological studies, right? So we're looking more so at cohorts and these people eat more of these foods and they're at higher risk and these people eat less of these foods. Number one, is it because of the meat or is it because of the saturated fat? And then number two, is it could it be that people who eat more meat also generally have lifestyles that are more conducive, that is just not a great environment? So you know what I'm going to say, right? Go ahead. I don't know what you're going to say. It depends. It's both. It's both. And it certainly depends. Um, Because like if if I if I consume, again, a nutrient poor diet, and I'm consuming a lot of red meat um, versus, you know, other lean meat sources that I could, you know, have the the choice to eat. And again, a lot of it is privilege, though, too. If, if you know, I have easy access to red meat and, you know, it's, it's cheaper in my particular environment, of course, that's probably what I'm going to eat most of. But there are other things other than saturated fats in red meats that can cause negative health outcomes. You mentioned nitrates and nitrates. So these are also carcinogens. Now, I'll say this with, with any carcinogen, um, no matter if it's you know, ultraviolet radiation or even wood dust. You know, if, if you're a woodworker and you work with wood dust, also a carcinogen, the amount of a carcinogen that you associate with is going to dictate the level of risk that you have with a particular disease like cancer. Oftentimes, if you have the ability to offset those effects by, you know, consuming a more nutrient diverse diet, uh, you should. Or in the context of other carcinogens, wearing sunscreen, you know, something that's also stupidly debated, which I can't understand. Um, because, you know, again, even in the context of that carcinogen, uh, wearing sunscreen, even if it did have negative health implications, would be far better than the negative health implications, which come from consistent exposure to ultraviolet radiation 
which is an ionizing form of radiation. We can talk about that shortly. Um, but going back to your question about diet, you know, it's, um, it's often about the things in, in meat, like, you know, carcinogen, like nitrates and nitrates, but also um, about other behaviors that can come from uh, meat consumption. So somebody who, and I say this very loosely, somebody who consumes a lot of meat may have correlative other behaviors, which may predispose them to um, specific types of cancers. Um, so maybe they, they also have a higher likelihood because they, you know, don't have a good understanding of their diet. Maybe they also don't understand the risks that come with smoking. Um, and again, these are loosely correlative. Um, but when we dig into the actual details and try and parse out um, the behavioral factors that come with, I guess, poor understanding of, of, of diet and, and our associations with health, um, there are things that kind of go hand in hand, like somebody's ability to or inability to understand of, you know, how much red meat they should eat in relation to, you know, smoking or their association to ultraviolet radiation. A lot of these things can add up over time. Exposure to these various things can change um, their, their, their rates of specific types of cancers. Are there more carcinogens in red meat than other types of like white meat or something like that? Um, you know, I don't actually know the answer to that, but if I, if I were to assume right now, I would say yes. Yeah. Something I, I guess I'll, I'll have to dig deeper into that. Yeah. I've I just don't know if it's, if it's the... because I, yeah, I, I never, I never thought of that question. This is, this is also why it's super important for people to have these discussions because whereas, you know, I talk a lot about a lot of things on my page and, and with a lot of people, um, but sometimes things just aren't intuitive to me. So it, it's really good that you, you know, you asked me that question because now I'll start to to think about it. And like, those are very basic things that, you know, even I obviously, you know, like not that I'm superior to anybody, but I haven't even thought about to understand. So these conversations are super important. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big reasons why I ask that is because if we remove saturated fat from meat and then we have somebody who exercises, eats adequate vegetables or doesn't, let's say that, right? If we have somebody who eats lean meat, is there going to be a difference in risk? And I'm not expecting you to answer this, but is there going to be like, is the saturated fat the component that's going to be the risk factor there? Um, so there are other risk factors, right? So another risk factor is, is associated with how we cook meat as well. If you break down protein at too high of a heat too quickly, you can also produce carcinogens. Go figure, you're, you're essentially smoking something, you're changing the molecular <laughs> structure of it and producing a carcinogenic compound. So particularly in red meats um, with the protein content, and this can also happen in, in leaner meats, when you break down um, proteins at too high of a heat, you can produce um, heterocyclic amines. That doesn't mean shit to anybody, but it, it can act as a carcinogen. And, you know, another jargony word is, is polyaromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs and uh, HCAs, if people have heard of those. Those are also carcinogens. But again, if I have high access to those meats, maybe I don't want to grill meat all the time at high heat. It's delicious that way. I love grilling meat myself, but you know, you have to moderate the the types of methods you use when when cooking certain things as well. All right. So then I'm going to continue down this rabbit hole for a second sure. here, if you, if you don't mind. We've got a piece of chicken and a piece of lean meat equal in fat, right? Same fat content cooked in the oven versus charred on the grill. Mm -hmm. 
I guess that that that's what I'm trying to get to with the the data that suggests that red meat is kind of a culprit in terms of risk factor. I guess my question is, is it the red meat? Is it the saturated fat? Or in the case that you just presented, is it the cooking method of the, you get what I'm saying? So if you compared, let's say they were both boiled and you ate them boiled, right? Is the red meat going to be still at higher risk? Yes. Um, Depending on where you get the meat, right? So like saturated fat is one thing, but it's not everything, right? So like, Again, saturated fat itself is not a carcinogen. Saturated fat can't cause cancer. But things like nitrates and nitrates, they they can act as carcinogens. They can induce cancer formation if you consume a lot of them within, you know, a, a very long period of time. So, yes, in in that regard, red meat does have a higher likelihood of inducing um or causing or I don't want to say causing because it's in correlating to increased rates of of cancers compared to leaner meats like like chicken. Are there more nitrates and nitrites in beef than chicken? To my knowledge, yes. Okay. I'm gonna have to do some more digging on that. Yeah, that's I'm something sorry. that I've that's something that I've always I've always wanted to dive into, but I'm like, there's so much research to read. I just I'm like, when do I when do I have the fucking time? Yeah. And so I mean I want to like segue into a different topic here too, because I think one of the issues with accessibility to information is this this layer of confusion if you don't have the ability to excuse me if you don't have the ability to parse through all the information that we're bombarded with on a daily basis it's no wonder that you know people are confused and so you have people like myself on you know instagram you have people like yourselves on instagram um essentially throwing this information at people and, and oftentimes no matter how much we break it down um people you know, we'll almost always go with the thing that's easier for them to understand, which more often than not tends to be uh, misinterpreted or wrong because they're coming from people that don't generally have a good understanding of themselves. And while it appears to be logical, because, you know, like, like an example that we briefly touched on before was, you know, sugar causing cancer, because we see uptake of sugar is higher in most cancer types. Um, we can assume that sugar causes cancer from a logical standpoint, based on that observation, it makes perfect sense to somebody who doesn't understand the biology, which is almost everybody. And again, that's not to place ourselves on a, a superiority, um, podium, but, um, that's just the realistic nature of this. And so that's same why thing with the alkaline, right? It, it's, it's logic it's, makes logical sense up front if you yeah. don't understand the mechanisms. Right. And then when you, when you take that first chemistry class in undergrad or even high school, I never took chemistry in high school, but you know, let's say you're like me and you, you first chemistry classes in undergrad. When you take that first chemistry class in, in undergrad and you start learning about pH and you're like, holy shit, all that stuff that I thought four years ago was legitimately wrong. Like I remember at some point I thought aspartame caused cancer. And I was like, you know, when I, when I started reading the literature, I'm like, why the, why would I think that, you know? So, so speaking of, can we get into that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, briefly, aspartame doesn't cause cancer. In fact, it's a very helpful tool for people who are trying to reduce caloric intake. Aspartame is a, is essentially it's um, amino acids. I forgot. I think it's phenylalanine. Yeah, it's phenylalanine. phenylalanine. And uh, aspartate, I think. Yeah, aspartate. Yeah. It's, it's called aspartame for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> but yeah, so it's it's not it's not carcinogenic. And and actually the the NCI, you know, realized that this would be confusing to people because you know you're putting something that initially wasn't super well tested into the market for human consumption. So they kind of took it back a little bit and they they tested it a little bit more just to make sure that they didn't release something that was potentially harmful to the population, at least in the doses that they were, you know, putting it out to consumers um, relating to the, you know, the FDA and, you know, whatever environmental agencies are associated with uh, human consumption or even like, I guess the EPA too. Um, but they did a study, um, a very, very thorough study looking at, you know, varying levels of or various dosages of aspartame. And they found that there was very weak evidence to suggest that it can even worsen cancer outcomes. Um, so even at this point, we still don't have, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that it doesn't worsen cancer outcomes, but we don't have really evidence to suggest that it, that it can worsen cancer outcomes. I think from what I've heard, and I, again, I haven't read into this research myself, is that there were some uh, animal models where they gave them super high doses and they developed cancer. But again, just like a lot of things, that's like a thousand times what you'd ever give to a human on any given day. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people, again, they they like to take those studies for whatever reason. They can't forget about them because they're super emotionally triggering. And no matter how much evidence we display to say that study was poorly done, and not appropriately dosed, people just hang on to that information and they keep recapitulating it. And, and that's what happens. Even, you know, I just, I just shared a reel about creatine relation to, uh, to cancer. And, um, you know, I was curious about the association between creatine, uh, and cancer as well. So I made a reel on it based on a study I had read. And, um, essentially these these researchers dosed with an absolute shit ton of creatine and i didn't realize it even in the study though they still didn't find like overall in the literature they were like you know there's there's not really a strong correlation to creatine causing cancer but in our models where essentially they they took these cancer cell lines and they injected them into mice into the areas where they you know exist physiologically so let's say it's like um what was it they had a, a breast cancer cell line. They injected it into the mammary fat pad or the breast to ensure the environment was the same as the cell line that it was derived from. And then they dosed with, with creatine to see how it affected the, the, the cancer growth or various cancer processes. And they found that when they gave the mice their creatine, it made the cancer cells metastasize to different parts of the body in a few different models. And actually, I hadn't read the methods in enough detail because, you know, they said in the in the paper uh, that they they dosed with a physiologically relevant dose of creatine. And I was like, OK, that's you know, they mentioned it. That, that must mean that they did it. Um, but a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Crystal Zuniga, uh, she her IG handle is at um, Cancer Nutrition HQ. She, you know, looked into the methods and she, uh, methods and she messaged me. She's like, I don't think they dosed with a physiological dose of creatine. And we did the math and it was, it was a ridiculously high amount of creatine. Like the standard human consumes five grams per day, independent of like body weight to minimum. Um, if you're taking it daily, which most people don't, I don't even. And they dosed with like a thousand fold more than that in mice. Um, so no wonder it created issues. The same is true with that aspartame study. If you dose with a shit ton of anything, it's going to cause problems. And I wouldn't have been surprised if 
the toxicity report in those mice came back and showed things like liver damage too from the dose that they gave them. But you know, so they get so they give them so the average dose a human would take, just to put this in perspective with the numbers here, they gave them instead of five grams, which is a human physiological dose. And I would just say on the upper end, let's say you're doing a loading phase with creatine, that would be 20 grams per day. And I don't think that there are any uh, studies that would really use more than that. I don't see a cause for using any more than 20 grams per day. They gave them instead of five grams, they gave them 5,000 grams. Yeah. Essentially would, would be, would be the equivalent. Not 5,000 grams, obviously, but they gave them, they gave them way too much. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. They gave yeah, again. It, it wasn't surprising that they saw that it enhanced metabolism. If they had given them a physiological dose, you probably wouldn't have seen anything. So people also need to understand that in our mechanistic studies, sometimes we need to exacerbate things to understand a foundational biology of cancer. And this is why it's important that we understand preclinical studies regarding mice but we don't make super strong conclusions from them when translating that information to humans, unless uh, clinical trials have been done or meta-analyses have been done um, regarding human data. So it's something that people consistently do on social media for clout, and it's really frustrating. But again, it's it is understandable because you know even like I fucked up, I didn't go to the methods and, and validate that they they did the math right. I assume they did it right. And apparently so did the reviewers of that cell metabolism paper. Yeah, well, I mean, then that goes into the whole review process to begin with. There are a lot of studies that I've seen that are questionable. There are some issues with uh, the review process. You know, I've, I've published a lot of papers. I've been in it. Um, I submitted a paper once. Actually, my thesis work, I, I thought it was very good. And it was very, I'm, I'm incredibly thorough when I do science. You won't catch one of those errors in my studies. Um, and that's not me just being cocky. I'm stupidly annoying about everything. Um, I won't, I won't publish a paper that has spelling errors, those sorts of things. So I'm very careful about that kind of stuff, but, um, the review process definitely has room for improvement in, in journals. I submitted my paper initially to, uh, science translational medicine. And, um, you know, typically when you submit a paper for review, you get, you know, the editor message you back, like a summary from three reviewers who looked at your paper and said, yeah, this is good enough for a journal or no, it isn't. Maybe you should do these experiments and then it can be good enough or maybe go somewhere else. It's not even close to being good enough for our journal. They gave me two reviewers. One of them completely shit on it, um, but it was clear they didn't even read the paper. The other one gave a really good review and very thoughtful comments and we could have worked with, but it was only two reviewers. So because one of the reviewers crapped on it, the editor was like, I can't make a decision. It was like, you could have picked a third reviewer for a tiebreaker, which is like what every journal does. Some cases, journals get four reviewers. But then my my boss was like, we're not submitting to this journal ever again. Like, it's clear that it's a political skewed uh, journal. Now, I've seen great papers in science translational medicine. I love a lot of the works that are published there, but there's a heavy-handed amount of politics that go into publishing in those um, nature cell science journals, especially in my field. Um, it's oftentimes about who, you know, but that's a separate topic. Gotcha. All good stuff, man. Well, listen, Joe, I appreciate your time. Yeah. And I appreciate, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on and educating us on this topic. This is definitely not my specialty or Nicole's specialty. Uh, nice. we, fo we focus mainly on nutrition 
and exercise and Nicole does a lot of women stuff as well. Women stuff. Women stuff. Women stuff. Yes. But thank you. I have been quiet just because I've been trying to listen and take it all in. So I appreciate you. I know I get, I know it's not very easy and, and I know I don't always do the greatest job of explaining things, but it is incredibly complicated. So everything you see that I, you know, I put into my posts, it takes me a lot of time to be able to think about. Um, it is, you know, as I, as I embrace more podcasts and things like that, it's, I've gotten better at explaining things in, in detail on the fly, but in general with um, somewhat minimal preparation, it is, um, it is very challenging to break things down. So I hope I did a, a somewhat sufficient job for most of the topics we discussed. And, um, you know, if, if you guys have any questions or if, if your viewers have any questions, you know, they should feel free to reach out to me and I can explain things further, um, having to digest the information a little bit more and, and teach, you know, where I can. Because like I said, a, an important thing to me is to be a good mentor and, and that requires time and effort for people. Yeah, absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, you can find Dr. Joe Zundel at dr.joezundel, dr.joezundel on Instagram. And I will drop his handle in the show notes for you guys to go check him out on Instagram. I think he does a really great job at breaking things down, making them less complicated, and also debunking some potential myths or some misunderstandings around either nutrition and cancer or just cancer in general. So thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. And, uh, you know, I'll be eager to to come back on your podcast and discuss another time if you'll have me. Absolutely. Absolutely. We would love that. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 